Okay. Oops. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. to really get into the different uh, subtleties or uh, major ways of understanding mind and this, the different aspects of mind in this tradition. Sort of finally, from my point of view, which is great, we've sort of built up all this background and uh, now we get to really explore like um, well, we'll see. Uh, briefly, it would help if... Uh, I was a little bit surprised that the book hasn't gone into a certain scheme yet. And... Uh, I, I see, it's 247. Hold on one second. It's just so bizarre. It's like uh, things are presented in an odd order. So tonight's material uh, t talks a lot about a scheme that the book doesn't get into later, but I'm going to review it briefly because it's sort of crucial to understand, I think, to understanding this material. And it's already come up and it would have been helpful to know it. So I'm going to show, uh, try to show a little diagram here. And I will circulate these afterwards, uh, unless I forget, but I will try not to forget. So objects and the way they're taken as objects. This is from uh, one of the workbooks from the Tartar Institute. The classification of objects in terms of the way they're taken as objects. And we saw in the collected topics, in the, in the outline of the collected topics, 
material, there was the scheme of the appearing, the uh, engaged and the apprehended object were uh, like at the top of the list and we kept not going over them. So the classification of objects right here, this little definition in terms of the way they're taken as objects by a subject is threefold, appearing objects or apprehended objects as one, referent objects and objects of engagement or objects of activity. So this is one classification and There are three types of objects, appearing, referent, and objects of engagement. Appearing objects are sometimes called apprehended objects. They're synonymous. And objects of engagement are sometimes called objects of activity. So simply we could just say appearing objects, referent objects, and objects of engagement. Appearing, referent, and objects of engagement. And uh, there's differences in the, in the traditions, which I just glossed over, but the definition of appearing object is that which can be known by its appearance. <laughs> sort of like form, you know, that which is suitable to be form. And then a basis for definition is the, uh, the Buddhist's favorite object in the world, a vase. What, what did I... What did you get for Christmas? A vase. <laughs> How about for a birthday? A vase. Anyway, um, whatever is a consciousness necessarily has an appearing object. All consciousnesses have an appearing object. The definition of an appearing object is that which can be known by its appearance. And the def basis is a vase. So the object generality vase is something that arises for our thoughts. And if the vase is white, that is directly validly cognized. What is directly validly cognized is the color white by our eye consciousness. In the case of direct valid cognition for an eye consciousness, what is the appearing object for that eye consciousness? The specifically characterized phenomena. Vases are not specifically characterized. Vases, plural, is the generality of a specifically characterized phenomena known as a vase. Direct valid cognition does not have a, a ref. Um, oh, this this person said, "What is?" He asked, "What is the appearing object?" And the and the student said, mistakenly, the reference. So I, I skipped that. Um, Oh, this is why I didn't use these workbooks, because they're sort of convoluted. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. In the Buddhist tradition of valid cognition, all consciousness have an appearing object. The appearing object is what literally appears to the consciousness. It's the image in the consciousness. In the case of sense-direct valid cognition, for example, the appearing object is a specifically characterized phenomena. But if you have a seeming direct valid cognition, like a yellow snow mountain, your appearing object is called a non-existent. And that gets even more complicated. 
Damn. Sorry about this. The definition of a referent object is that which can be known by conceptually referring to it. Um, so the referent object is by definition the object of a conceptual consciousness. The object of engagement is that which is undeceiving when one engages it for the purpose of using it or rejecting it, and that's the external object. So when you look at a vase, in the, in the case of looking at a vase, the appearing object is uh, the appearing object to, to sense direct valid cognition is the aspect of the vase that's replicated in the sense consciousness, in the sense base, sorry, in the sense consciousness um, apprehends that appearing, that, um, that replication that appears in the sense space. So with vision, we know how vision works and the visual system creates a little image of the outer object initially upside down on the back of the retinue, retinue, retina, and then it flips back right side up later on. But uh, that's that would be the appearing object. That's what actually appears to the sense basis, in the sense basis, and appears to the sense consciousness. The appearing object of a conceptual consciousness is a generally characterized phenomena. So the aspect of an actual vase that is replicated in the sense base of the visual consciousness and is the appearing object of a sense of the visual sense consciousness is a specifically characterized phenomena. It's an actual phenomena that exists on its own from the point of view of the South Trantica tradition. Whereas um, the idea of vases is a general idea. It's a universal. It's uh, uh, determined by excluding everything that's not a vase. And so it's a generally characterized phenomena. And um, that's what appears to the mind. In the case of the sense direct cognition, the actual outside uh, vase is correctly engaged through the replication of its color and shape in the visual consciousness. So the outer object, the so-called actual thing called the vase, is um, the object of engagement. The eye consciousness actually engages with the actual external object, which is considered to be uh, an existent, a dharma, composed of uh, subtle, partless particles, and so forth. And the uh, mental sense consciousness, so like uh, in, in the uh, momentary nature of cognition, first you have the, uh, the, the state before the sense, the, the visual cognition, where the uh, consciousnesses are doing something else, and then they shift and you look at a vase, and then the eye consciousness perceives the replication of the white shape 
in the case of a white vase, in the sense space, in, uh, in that moment, in the next moment, and then in the moment after that, that gets transferred to the mental sense direct cognition, which also directly non-conceptually cognizes the sense consciousness, um, sorry, the sense, the replication of the object in the sense base. So the, the visual sense consciousness and the mental sense consciousness have the same object, appearing object. And the mental sense consciousness, that first moment is, is direct and not conceptual, so it also engages with the actual specifically characterized vase. However, the next moment it goes into association and conceptuality and thinking about the vase and the labeling process. Oh, it's a vase. It's a white vase. It's mine, it's yours, it's whatever thinking about the vase and that's the realm of conceptuality and at that point the object of engagement is um, a conceptual idea of vase we're we're uh we're uh i'm sorry let me take that last part back we're, the object of engagement is still the uh I'm um, sorry, we're not engaging with the vase, is how they put it. Uh, because engagement is a direct cognition, is, an, is the activity of direct cognition, is engagement. And so the conceptual cognition doesn't engage the outer object, it refers to it. It uses the appearing object to refer to the actual outside object. So it's called a referent object. So a conceptual cognition has a referent object and a non-conceptual cognition has an object of engagement that it actually engages in. And that's the, the structure. So um, you have one outer object and uh, the eye sense consciousness and the, that very brief moment of mental sense direct consciousness cognition sees the actual outer vase engages with it in a direct non-conceptual way through the aspect or the replication of that vase in the visual apparatus and then the mental consciousness in the second moment of mental consciousness when it's a conceptual version it's merely referring to the outer object through the object that appears to the conceptual cognition at that point is a generally characterized phenomena, a general idea of white vases. It's, it's gone from uh, non-conceptual to conceptual cognition, and now we're, we're thinking about white vases, and we think we're seeing a white vase. And so as we'll see tonight, that lays the groundwork for the fundamental difference in what we call a validity of cognition between conceptual and non-conceptual cognitions. And there's two ways of looking at the sort of um, authenticity, let's say, of a cognition. One is, is it valid or invalid? And the other is, is it mistaken or un unmistaken? And uh, 
these these uh, that scheme of different of the uh, uh, engaged object, the referent object, the appearing object. The appearing object is what is apprehended by the cognition. That scheme is translated in different, those terms are translated in different ways, of course, by different translators. And so in a course a long time ago, I put together this other chart that I'll circulate. Which shows these are different authors across the top. So one is the Dudra terminology, and then there's a terminology presented by a gentleman named Geshe Rapten who writes a book called Mind and Its Functions book by Daniel Perdue called uh, Debate in Tibetan Tradition. And then I can't even remember what NCM and CM stand for, just other authors, I guess. But in the Duju, we have the appearing object, and that's usually called the appearing object. Uh, but it's in, the it's in the sensory apparatus, so sometimes it's called the mental image. I'm going to skip the actual object terminology because that's too confusing. Uh, then we looked at and, and skipped the main, which is another way really of looking at the object of engagement. The main object and the object of engagement are really the same. The referent object is the conceived object. It's determined. It's the determined object, determined by concept, and it's the concept of the actual object. The object of engagement, which is the, uh, the ultimate object of a non-conceptual, direct, valid cognition. Robton calls it, confusingly, he uses the same term as the conceptual thing, so I'll skip that. It's usually called the object of engagement or the actual object. And there was a chart that our friend Peter Bragg created years ago that I need to find and I'll send, I'll share. So when you say uh, engagement, is that kind of like you take the object in? Is that when you reach out and grab the object? So you kind of... Without your hands, but with your mind. With your mind. Right, you've actually grabbed the actual object with whatever sense consciousness is, is operative, visual, auditory, or it could be the, the physical, the tactile consciousness. Yeah. So you take it in, you conceptualize it, you say, what can I use that for? Oh, and you go and you reach for it, so to speak. Yeah, well, you, you take it in as all non-conceptual, yeah. direct sense cognition, and then it goes to the conceptual mind that does just what you said, like... What what does that mean to me? You know, how can I utilize that? Or oh, I can put flowers in it, or whatever. Let me do that, and then you engage it. And when you when you put flowers in it, you're thinking that it's a vase, and your hands grab the actual vase. But you're living in the world of generality of generalities, where you're thinking there's vases, and I have one in my hand, and I'm going to use it to put this thing called flowers in them. So, the, the, you know, the sort of the cut to the chase is the problem with conceptual cognition is it mistakes the uh, 
appearing object, which is a generality for the actual outer object called the object of engagement in the non-conceptual world. And so the conceptual mind continually thinks that we're engaging reality, but we're engaging our conceptual version of reality. And as we know, conceptual versions of reality every once in a while <laughs> are not correct. <laughs> Maybe it's more than every once in a while, but that probably varies. Um, so that's, that's the real crux of the whole situation. So I believe we're finishing up the last section, which was on page 70. Do I hear any yeas or nays to that? Middle of page 70. I got a thumbs up. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Two thumbs up. Pretty good. Okay. I believe we're in the first full graph of page 70. And this is on the topic of conceptual and non-conceptual. There's a twofold categorization of conceptual cognition, those that concur with their objects and those that don't i.e. like correct conceptuality and incorrect conceptuality. A conceptual cognition whose engaged object, so here they're using the term engaged for the way that a conceptual cognition is relating to its object. So, you know, you got to be really flexible with these different translations and see that, unfortunately, there's zero standardization but a conceptual cognition whose engaged object exists is called a conceptual cognition that concurs with its object. You think you're holding a vase and you're actually holding a vase. An example is a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot. Conceptual cognition whose engaged object does not exist is called a conceptual cognition that does not concur. An example is a conceptual cognition apprehending the rabbit's horns are one of our favorite examples. There's also the rope and the snake. You see a, a, a rope or a hose in the grass and you think it's a snake. So the conceptual cognition is engaging with a snake. Here, a pot is asserted to be the engaged object of a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot. The horns of a rabbit is an engaged object of a conceptual cognition apprehending a rabbit's horns in both cases, but one is correct and one is not. Also, when conceptual cognitions are categorized according to their purpose, there are two types. Conceptual cognition associating a word and a conceptual cognition associating a referent. A conceptual cognition associating a word is one that associates the word from the time of learning the linguistic convention with the referent at the time of applying the convention as a classificatory one. An example is this dappled thing as a cow. <laughs> the difference between a linguistic convention and a classificatory convention is as follows. When a word is first applied to an object that is in linguistic convention, when you first learn the word cow and identify that it relates to the so-called dappled animal. And when that convention is used on later occasions, it's called classificatory. A conceptual cognition that connects a subject of predication with a predicated quality, which is a really convoluted way of saying uh, conceptual cognition that uh, comes up with a 
thesis or a hypothesis about a, a subject being something like fire is hot is called a conceptual cognition associating a referent. An example is the conceptual cognition this person as a staff holder. <laughs> Must have been a popular job. It cognizes by applying the predicate equality staff holder to the subject of the predication this person. So, so we have linguistic uh, affiliations, classificatory affiliations, and quali quality or characteristics. Um, Dignaga says, some, suppose someone asks, why is this, what is this so-called conceptual cognition? Is that which associates a name, the linguistic class, and so on, characteristics with an object? In the case of arbitrary words, an object is expressed as qualified by the name, such as Dita, which presumably is a common name of a person at some time and place. In the case of class words, the object is expressed as qualified by a class such as cow. Uh, in the case, uh, Dita might mean cow for all I know. In the case of quality words, the uh, uh, quality, quality meaning like characteristics or qualities, the object is expressed as qualified by a quality such as white. In the case of action words, the object is expressed as qualified by an activity such as cooking. And in the case of substance words, the object is qualified, is expressed as qualified by substance such as staff holder or horned, as in the case of a staff holder and a horned rabbit. So here name indicates a conceptual cognition associating a word, and class indicates a conceptual cognition associating a referent. That's being referred to by the, the class, by the name. Uh, the, the name the class is referred to by the name uh, and it just clarifies those different examples so I'm going to skip that paragraph also in some te text three types of conceptual cognition are explained those that rely on linguistic conventions conceptual cognitions that superimpose something else onto their object and those uh, of that which is hidden conceptual cognition that arises in dependence on associating a name or linguistic convention is one that relies on language. An example is uh, the bulbous thing as a pot. Superimposing something else onto an object or apprehending it to be other than what it actually is, is a conceptual cognition that superimposes something. An example is, is saying uh, inappropriately uh, su su superimposes attractiveness onto an unattractive object, <laughs> as if attractiveness was uh, an objectively real thing. A conceptual cognition focused on something which is hidden to one is a conceptual cognition of that which is hidden. An example is a cognition apprehending a pot to be impermanent, and the impermanence of a pot is a hidden phenomena or characteristic, whereas we see the the shape and the color of a pot with our sense cognitions, we don't see the impermanence with our mental cognition. Uh, he gives some quotes supporting that, skipping those. The nature of a non-conceptual cognition is to be a moment of awareness that's free from any construing awareness that apprehends words and referent as suitable to be associated. Two types, non-conceptual consciousness that concurs with the object and that which doesn't. That which 
uh, who's uh, a non-conceptual consciousness whose engaged object exists in, is called one that concurs and a non-conceptual consciousness that, which engages with an object that doesn't occur, exist is called uh, one that does not concur with the object. Next paragraph. In brief, a conceptual mental cognition and a non-conceptual sense cognition are different in various ways, including whether the cognition's object appears clearly, the cognition apprehends word and referent as suitable to be associated, the cognition depends on a linguistic convention. When this or that object appears in cognition, it appears to be fused with an object universal. Subject and its properties appear separately. The cognition apprehends the subject and its properties as mutually associated. The, co the cognition qualifies its object with a class, quality, or an action. The cognition is caused by remembering and linguistic connection. Convention, sorry, the cognition is qualified by time, the cognition apprehends earlier and later times in combination, or the cognition occurs due to the proximity of its observed object. Most of those were conceptual, there were a couple that were non-conceptual. So, next section, valid and uh, mistaken. The purpose of the presentations and valid cognition found in the scriptures to help beings accomplish their goals. The various sufferings that exist in the world which are universally unwelcome occur on the basis of ignorance of the nature of things in reality. If one can find the valid means of knowing and a reliance on them, one can engage in correct norms of what is to be affirmed and what is to be rejected. In this way, one will be able to accomplish the desired goals, which is a nice little reminder of like, why the hell are we going through all this convoluted weirdness? Dharmakirti's text called A Drop of Reasoning. What, how does that go? Just a drop of medicine, a drop of the song, isn't there a song? Mary Poppins or something. It's just a, a spoonful, spoonful of, of sugar. sugar. Helps the medicine, Helps the medicine okay. go down. <laughs> close, okay, close. <laughs> Dharmakirti says, since correct cognition is the prerequisite to the fulfillment of everyone's aims, let's focus on it. Let's try to understand it. Sanskrit word for valid cognition is pramana, composed of two parts, pra and mana. And there's two ways of interpreting these. The prefix can, uh, pra can have many meanings. In, this, in the first case, it means first. The second part, mana, means to measure, comprehend, realize, or know. And it's the root of the uh, many cognate words that uh, give different aspects of mind. Therefore, valid cognition is that which first or newly comprehends something that was not realized before. So we encountered this briefly a little earlier, this idea of subsequent cognition as being like the second moment of the cognition of the same phenomena. And even though no phenomena exists for two moments, but it was like the, the uh, subsequent cognition of the, of the next moment in the stream of a phenomena's continuum. It's the clunky way of trying to say that without disqualifying yourself as a true Buddhist. And... Um, uh, 
only the first moment of cognition from some point of view is considered to be pramana, direct and valid. Okay, therefore valid cognition is that which is first or newly comprehends something that was not realized before. And he gives a quote. Alternatively, pra can mean excellent or supreme, which in Sanskrit is parama-arta. The supreme purpose, arta is purpose or meaning or objective or goal. Uh, here, and uh, parama-arta is the ultimate truth. Here too, the syllable mana means to measure. So valid cognition is that which is non-deceptive and thus supremely knows its object. So there's those two ways of interpreting pramana, either like the first moment of cognition or the supreme moment of cognition. The Gelukpas tend to focus on the first moment of cognition as being an essential part, or like both definitions as being relevant, whereas the Kagyu tradition focuses on the supreme cognition aspect of the two possible donation, uh, definitions. Skipping the quote, then on the next page, thus the definition of valid cognition is a newly acquired and non-deceptive cognition. So we're in the global world, so we have the two of them incorporated. The part of this definition that says newly excludes subsequent cognition from being valid, and the part that says non-deceptive excludes correct assumption, doubt, and distorted cognition from being valid cognition. And if you remember, there was a uh, sort of a sequence of different types of cognition that ascension beings are capable of experiencing, which go from totally wrong cognition to completely perfect cognition of uh, valid, uh, direct valid cognition or inferential valid cognition. And so below those on the list of uh, possible types of cognition, ones that were not convincing are correct assumption, like when you correctly assume that something's going to happen based on other factors, but you don't really know. You're guessing. And then there's doubt, not being sure. And then there's thinking that something is true that's not true. So those are uh, not valid cognitions. The part that says cognition excludes the physical eye, sense, faculty, and so on from being a valid cognition. Does that make sense? Excluding the eyes, physical eye sense faculty. Because the eye sense faculty is not a cognition, it's a sense faculty. The consciousness of the eye sense faculty is a cognition. Just to make sure that was clear. Skipping the quotes, that is to say, consciousness that accords with the object's real way of existing is non-deceptive. The idea, uh, going back to the beginning of this little chapter of like how do we unravel suffering, is by seeing the true nature of phenomena and uh, that understanding of the true nature of phenomena in order to for it to liberate us from suffering has to be a like a superb cognition, a superb understanding, not not an intimation, not like a maybe, not like I think, you know. Um, or I wish, it has to be like a real knowing. What is the true nature of phenomena? It's empty and permanent and so forth. And so that's why there's this obsession with pramana, valid.
metacognition because only pramana can create that definitiveness of understanding and experience that liberates. Also, since it cognizes an object for the first time, it determines it on its own accord. It's characterized as newly realizing. Alternatively, valid cognition can be defined as a consciousness that is non-deceptive regarding its comprehended object, which it has determined on its own accord. Valid cognition can be defined as a consciousness that is non-deceptive regarding its comprehended object, which it has determined on its own accord. So here we have a different type or terminology for a type of object called comprehended. And it's, it's uh, a little bit unclear to me exactly which version of the object that's getting at, but it seems to be getting at sort of the whole megillah of the uh, process of cognition, that the result of any type of cognition is comprehending its object. And so valid cognition comprehends its object in a non-deceptive way. Um, in its own accord would mean through its own various specific means, such as the eye consciousness or so forth. Right cognition has two aspects, direct perception and inferential understanding. These two are right because when we act having determined an object through one or both of those, these two, we are not deceived with regard to that object's functioning. So in this tradition, we accept two forms of cognition as being authoritative or valid, direct perception, which is uh, direct non-conceptual experience through the senses, or the first moment of a mental sense cognition that arises on the basis of the preceding, immediately preceding cognition of a sense cognition and <laughs> inferential understanding that <laughs> possesses the three aspects of an ironclad inference, which we'll get to eventually. Um, these two are right because when we act, sorry, said that next. On this point, the definition of valid cognition, the views of the Buddhist schools from Sautrantika up to Swatantrika and Yamaka are in harmony. So that includes Chittamatra as well as Swatantrika, Madhyamaka, and Sautrantika, three of the various, in this case, five schools. But now Prasangika and Chandrakirti, who's a Prasangika's clear words, uh, which is the translation of a Sanskrit text called Prasanapada. However, Dinaga's definition of valid cognition and views on direct perception and so on are refuted. What an upstart he is. On the, on the gra grounds that they are set forth on the basis of proposing inherently existing phenomena. So the Svatajogamadhyamaka has accepted Dignaga's and Dharmakirti system of logic because they accept the uh, opponent's belief in inherently existing phenomena without challenging them. And then on that basis, they try to get their opponent, did something happen? Their opponent to understand the true nature of those phenomena as not inherently existent. But they, they uh, start from a generally accepted realm of uh, there being things that can be talked about. Whereas Prasangas, if you say to them, see that tree over there, it's, imp it's impermanent. And they're like, I don't see a tree. 
Where do you see a tree? What's a tree? In other words, you do not want to go on a road trip with a prasangika. Um, in Chandrakirti's own system, valid cognition is posited only on the basis of being non-deceptive in agreement with what is commonly accepted in everyday conventions of the world. So it's like, you see that tree over there? Hey, that tree! And the prasangika is like, okay, if you insist on calling it a tree, I'll, I'll go along with that. Therefore, being non-deceptive alone exhausts the meaning of what a valid cognition is, and there's no need to add the qualification newly arising to the definition. So the prasangas don't uh, fuss about newly arising. It just has to be non-deceptive. So we need to understand from statements such as these that there are unique epistemological views in Chandra Kirti's system. In general, although the word valid can be applied to valid cognition, a valid person and a valid scripture. The last two are not valid in their own right. So to be valid is synonymous with being a valid cognition. So a valid person would be a person who is, possesses valid cognition and a valid scripture is one that possesses valid inferential, uh, produces valid cognition through its inferential process. As for the two types of valid cognition, direct and inferential, this will be explained later. Buddhist epistemological texts differentiate the two kinds of effects of valid cognition, mediated effects of valid cognition and unmediated effects of valid cognition. This is to emphasize the point that every genuine goal desired by living beings is accomplished as either a direct or an indirect effect of valid cognition. In other words, valid cognition is the basis of everything we do, because we start by like, um, what happens when you bang your head against the wall? It hurts. What happens when you do it? Yeah, it hurts. So we have the, like a general agreement on the, uh, the, the nature of phenomena through, that we experience through our direct valid cognitions, and that's the basis of everything else. The definition of a non-valid cognition is that which is not newly a newly acquired and non-deceptive cognition with respect to its object. Instances include a subsequent cognition, realizing sound to be impermanent, and a thought holding sound to be permanent. A subsequent cognition, realizing sound to be permanent, is not pramana because it's a subsequent cognition. The initial cognition of realizing sound to be permanent is of direct valid cognition. The thought holding sound to be permanent is not valid because it's mistaken. Although subsequent cognition realizing sound to be permanent, impermanent is non-deceptive regarding sound being impermanent, thus satisfying the meaning of non-deceptive. It does not newly realize sound to be impermanent, thus does not satisfy the meaning of newly realizing. A thought holding sound to be impermanent being in mind that is distortedly superimposes an incorrect attribute of sound does not satisfy either the meaning of non-deceptive or of newly realizing. Among the seven types of cognition to be discussed, to be discussed later, distorted cognition doubt, correct assumption, subsequent cognition, and indeterminate perception are all non-valid cognitions. One, two, three, four, five. So those are five of the seven. The other two presumably are direct and inferential valid cognition. 
As for Prasangika Madhyamaka thinkers like Chandrakirti, since they maintain that valid cognition does not need to be newly realizing, and they define valid cognition as consciousness that is merely non-deceptive, in accordance with what is commonly accepted in the world, subsequent cognition too qualifies as valid cognition because it is non-deceptive with regard to its principal object. Also, both conceptual and non-conceptual subsequent cognition are accepted to be valid direct perception because the former understands its object not in dependence on reasoning but through experience. So, in the Prasangika world, they accept subsequent cognition, both conceptual and or non-inferential uh, uh, and non-conceptual or direct. For example, without relying on reasoning, you can know in a mundane sense, the person whom you met before you you claim, I know that person through direct perception. Therefore, both conceptual and non-conceptual forms of direct perception are accepted in this system. Chandra Kirti's refutation of Dignaga's epistemology in general, as well as his refutation of Dignaga's views and perception in particular, and Chandra Kirti's own unique views will be addressed later. Mistaken versus unmistaken, or uh, sorry, in uh, volume four of this four volume series. There are two ways in which a cognition may be mistaken. It may be mistaken only with regard to its peer, appearing object, or it may be mistaken with regard to its engaged object as well as its appearing object. So remembering that the appearing object is the way that the senses replicate the outer object, and um, the engaged object is the so-called actual object out there. So we can be mistaken in terms of how the object is replicated in our sense sensory systems due to fault, uh, faulty sense systems, or we can just understand the outer object incorrectly. For example, conceptual cognition apprehending a pot is mistaken only with regard to its appearing object. And a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot to be permanent is mistaken with regard to its engaged object as well as its appearing object. So a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot is mistaken only with regard to the appearing object because the appearing object is a, is a, uh, um, a conceptual object, a generality and it fuses the generality with the object of engagement, which is a specifically characterized phenomenon, which is the drawback of conceptual cognition. Even inferential conceptual cognition has this problem where it, it affiliates the appearing object, which in the case of a conceptual cognition is a generality with the object of engagement. And uh, let's see, and then he says, a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot to be permanent is mistaken with regard to its engaged object, because there are no permanent pots in the real world, as well as its appearing object, uh, because it's conceptual. In the case of a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot, its appearing object appears to be a pot, but it's not a pot. So this mind is, with respect, is mistaken with regard to its appearing object. It appears to be a pot, but it's it's a it's a concept of a pot. It's the appearing object of a conceptual cognition of a pot. And a so, sorry, Derek, just to clarify. So, in that instance, they just said there is a pot there. It's not like it's a fish, and the person's confused. It's a pot there, 
but the error, the mistakenness is in mistaking the appearance of the pot for the pot itself. That's the error, right? Uh, not exactly. The, the error is in the conceptual apprehension, let's say, of an actual pot out there. The mistake is that the conceptual cognition thinks that the appearing object is the actual pot. And the appearing object of a conceptual cognition is the idea of pot. Right. So, so okay. it thinks, oh, I'm seeing a pot. I'm seeing one right. of those things that is a pot. Because that's what appears to the conceptual cognition. And so that's the mistake, that a, a general idea of a pot is not an actual pot. And in the case of pots, we're like, what the hell is the big deal? right you know it like serves it it's a helpful way of using pots uh but when it comes to things like self and you know and subtle phenomena like that that are objects of attachment then it's a, a much more important situation right okay thank you Let's... Derek. before you get started again yeah so the main point of this is not that somebody so enlightened would look at a pot and see something impermanent. They wouldn't have some kind of valid cognition of seeing some kind of particle, that, partless particles, is it? That's part of it. Not necessarily partless particles, but they would see the impermanence of a pot. <clears throat> and they would, the, the idea is that an aria can see the impermanence of a pot just like we can see the whiteness of a pot. That the impermanence, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a really good question. So the impermanence of a pot is an aspect of a pot, just like all other phenomena, bear the mark of impermanence. And an aria can actually directly cognize the impermanence, just like they can see the color and the shape. And that's the mental direct valid cognition. Additionally, the aria will not mistake the conceptual idea of pot with the actual pot. An, an aria is not mistaken by the way conceptual cognition works. An aria instantaneously knows, oh, I'm a, uh, my conceptual framework is habituated to affiliating the general idea of pots with... Um, Uh, the the general uh, mistaking the general idea of a pot with a pot. Hmm. So there's uh, both of those things going right. on. Thanks. Mary Beth, what? Is that because the arhat in each moment of like seeing the pot is realizing that, oh, it's a little different. Oh, it's changed. Oh, it's like it's it is a newly a newly realized something, something. Uh, not like the prasangikas, but like the other ones thought that it has to each time. Each time you see, it has to be like new, because it is new because it just changed from the last second. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think it's the idea is that the arhat actually sees that something changed in it, and therefore sees the impermanence of the pot. I think it's more that the arhat instantaneously knows that a pot is a created phenomena that's compounded and knows 
um, non-conceptually that all created compounded phenomena are impermanent and so sees that impermanent quality of it but it's it's a really good question and it's this sort of weird uh, thing that comes up in many places that the impermanence of, a po of, of phenomena is something that can be directly cognized by enlightened individuals and like what does that mean what is that like how does that work is a really good question so i gave you my answer to that but uh hopefully it'll come up more and more we can see how they talk about it uh let's see and it can so so this mind is mistaken with regard to its appearing object it's think think the conceptual mind thinks the appearing object is an actual pot when the appearing object is a general idea of a pot in a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot to be permanent not only does the pot appear as permanent but the pot is apprehended to be permanent too so it's two mistakes um Therefore, this mind is mistaken with regard to both its appearing and its engaged object, thus it's known as distorted cognition. The definition of a mistaken cognition is a mind that is mistaken with regard to its appearing object. A mistaken cognition, while it must be mistaken with regard to its appearing object, might, may be either mistaken or unmistaken with regard to its object as cognized. Um, there are two types of cognition that are mistaken, mistaken conceptual and mistaken non-conceptual examples are in the first case, a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot, and in the second, a sense consciousness to which a white snow mountain appears blue. Uh, let's see. The latter is categorized as a distorted cognition, but it's also mistaken in terms of its object as cognized as well as its appearing object so let's see they'll explain these two conceptual cognitions are mistaken regarding their appearing object and that an object universal appears to be the object which is what we've been talking about distorted cognitions are mistaken regarding their engaged object and that they hold their engaged object to exist in a way it does not in this case there's a distortion of the visual sense consciousness perceiving a blue a white snow mountain to be blue and we think that the outer object is blue a mistaken cognition may be mistaken regarding its object due to influence of either a temporary cause of error or a deeper cause of error therefore uh, there are four types of temporary cause of error one that exists in the basis one that exists in the object one that exists in the location one that exists in the immediately preceding condition an example of a non-conceptual cognition with a temporary cause of error in the basis is the visual cognition of two moons that occurs when the eyes is affected by an eye disorder. So uh, when they use the word basis, that means the, the sense basis. So there's a, there's a problem with the eye sense basis, and so we're, we're seeing two moons, and that's a temporary situation because uh, it, it uh, doesn't always per, per exist for everybody, all, always. 
The main condition causing this mind to be mistaken comes about through the function of the basis, that is the visual sense organ, so the cause of error is said to be in the basis. Second, an example of a non-conceptual cognition with a temporary cause of error in the object is a sensory cognition in which a disc appears when a fan spins around very quickly. So when you look at a fan, you see a disc, that's a mistake that we project onto the object. Um, or like when you uh, twirl a firebrand around and it looks like a ring of fire. Third, an example of a non-conceptual cognition with a temporary cause of error in the location is the sensory cognition in which trees appear to be moving, as can occur when someone travels on a boat. This is a, like an oddity in this tradition, like location is just like a weird classification. But basically, they make a big point out of the fact that if you're moving, and uh, if you're moving, then it appears that the environment is moving. Like if you're moving without um, exerting yourself, such as you're sitting in a boat propelled by something else, it appears like the landscape on the shore is moving towards you and past you. <laughs> um, let's see. Fourth, an example of a non-conceptual cognition with a temporary cause of error in the immediately preceding condition is a sensory cognition in which the ground appears to be red due to the mind being disturbed by anger. Everyone knows that when you're angry, everything looks red, right? Drop of Reasoning, text by Dharma uh, Kirti says a direct perception is a cognition in which no error has been induced by an eye disorder, by fast spinning objects, by a boat travel, <laughs> or plane travel, or, other time, uh, or mental disturbance, and so on. There are two types of conditions that cause such errors, conditions that distort the sense faculty and conditions that distort the mental sense faculty. The first has two types, external conditions distort the physical sense faculties and internal conditions that distort them. Sorry, that distort the physical sense faculties and internal. The first type includes things like mirrors, voices in a cave, summer sunlight in a pale sandy area nearby, visual hallucinations that are external. You have external situations like a desert that causes a mirage that create the conditions for a mistaken visual sense consciousness and that happens to some extent with the other sense consciousnesses. Um, these respectively cause apprehension of a reflection of a face, echoes of speech, mirages, water, and so on. Second, internal conditions that distort the physical sense faculties include such things as an eye disorder, jaundice, infectious disease, and so on. These cause sensory cognitions to be mistaken. Like people that had COVID said they lost their sense of taste and smell and so things didn't taste the way they used to, so they had a distorted uh, sense consciousness. Uh, there may also be errors regarding shape, color, number, measurement, and so on. For example, a circle of light appearing when a firebrand is spun around very fast is an error regarding shape. A white conch shell appearing yellow is an error regarding color. Trees appearing to be moving as effective traveling a boat. Regarding activity, a moon appearing as two, number falling hairs appearing when there are none, is an error regarding nature. And that the falling hairs are the uh, floaters and the aqueous, vitreous humor, or whatever, of the eyeball. 
sunshine at midnight appearing in a dream is an error regarding time. <laughs> if you ever have a dream of it being nighttime and the sun shining, that's that's a problem. You should see somebody. A large object appearing small when seen from a distance is an error regarding measurement. Among these, the dream consciousness is a mental consciousness, and the rest are sense. Asanga's levels of yogic deeds, Yogacara Bhumi, speaks of other causes of error in five ways. Erring with regard to discernment, number, shape, color, action. So there's different classifications of these different of, uh, types of errors. Erroneous discernment is, for example, when one sees David Dutta, our friend David Dutta, the, uh, the scapegoat of the Buddhist world, and thinks it's Yajna Dutta, erring with regard to action as a synonym for erring with regard to function. As for deeper causes of error, those are as stated in the ornament for the middle way, which is the Madhyama Kalamkra by Shantarakshita, from the ripening of latent potencies within a beginningless mental continuum, aka the Aliya Vijnana, projected images appear, but since they're mistaken, they are in nature like illusions. It's the way that all, all phenomena are viewed in that tradition as being illusory projections of our Aliya Vijnana. According to sources such as above, these are stable causes of error that have arisen since time without beginning, since one is deeply habituated to viewing oneself and others as existing in an independent and autonomous way. Then when anger, for example, arises toward people such as enemies whom one dislikes, the people or the objects of that mental state appear to be independently and objectively unattractive. <laughs> you know, we, we dislike certain people so much that we think it's like obvious to everybody. They like just look wrong. It skips a quote. As for the second type, conditions that distort the mental sense faculty include dreams, intoxication, and medication. Because these cause the mental consciousness sense base to be mistaken. In the Buddhist epistemological text, mistaken cognition is referred to also by the term fallacious perception. What's the difference between these two terms? Mistaken cognition and fallacious perception are in fact synonymous. Definition of fallacious perception as a cognition that is mistaken with regard to its appearing object. Um, and uh, the quote gives examples of fallacious perceptions. Here, fallacious perceptions presented in terms of seven categories. Boom, 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 boom. Let's skip those. Go to the next paragraph. Conceptual cognition apprehending a reason is called an inference. Oh. This is because the thought apprehending a reason is the cause of its resultant inferential understanding based on reasoning, so the name of the result is applied to its cause. That little phrase is just a little oddity that they like to repeat that indicates the way things are named. Some things are named by their cause and some things are named as according to their results. It's just whatever. In Dharmakirti's exposition of valid cognition, Pramanavartika, however, these seven types of fallacious perception are subsumed into four. Linguistic convention, superimposition, hidden objects, and impaired sense faculties. The first three are conceptual and the fourth is not. Definition of an unmistaken cognition is a cognition that is not mistaken with, with regard to its appearing object. 
according to the Sautrantika and the Sautrantika Madhyamaka systems, direct perception is unmistaken. So the uh, Swatantrika Madhyamaka tradition is divided into Sautrantika Swatantrika Madhyamaka and Yogacara Swatantrika Madhyamaka, which is a fine distinction that is being referred to here. Anyway, according to Sautrantika and the Sautrantika Madhyamaka, direct perception is unmistaken. For them, a visual cognition of blue is an unmistaken cognition. Conceptual cognitions mistake their objects universal for the object itself, thus they're necessarily mistaken, no matter whether they are mistaken or unmistaken regarding their object as cognized. If a non-conceptual consciousness is unmistaken regarding its object as cognized, then it must be unmistaken regarding its appearing object. It must, if, if a non-conceptual consciousness or cognition correctly uh, cognizes the outer object, then it's appearing object, that's the basis for that cognition of the outer object, must be non-mistaken. Therefore, if a cognition is unmistaken, it must be a non-conceptual consciousness. So non-conceptual and unmistaken are synonymous. Uh, are, uh, unmistaken is only a type of non-conceptual consciousness because all conceptual consciousnesses are mistaken in regard to the way they view the appearing object and the referent object. Also, since directly perceiving subsequent cognitions and indeterminate perceptions are also unmistaken cognitions, unmistaken cognitions need not necessarily be valid cognitions. So un unmistaken can be invalid but they can be unmistaken in terms of the way that the appearing object presents the uh, engaged object, but they can still mistake the uh, engaged object for being, um, they can think that they're permanent and therefore they're not valid. According to the Chittamatra, the Yogacara Madhyamaka and the Prasangaka Madhyamaka systems, which are the other schools uh, um, in addition to the Sautrantika and Sautrantika, Swatantrika, Madhyamaka, these are the other possible schools. Visual cognitions apprehending blue and so on are mistaken because they're distorted by a deeper cause of error. For the Prasangika Madhyamakas, they consider all conceptual non conceptual cognitions within the mind streams of ordinary beings to be mistaken, yet they also maintain that all instances of cognition directly apprehend their own appearances. Subtle distinctions such as these are drawn by the that are drawn by prasangas will be explained in subsequent volumes when we go through the tenant systems and subtle points about those tenant systems, but basically the prasanga madhyamakas assert that all cognitions um, are what are they are mistaken because they don't uh, understand that phenomena are not inherently existent. They uh, sense consciousnesses except the reality of sense objects. So they may be unmistaken from some point of view, but from the prasanga point of view, they're mistaken in that. They think that things exist the way they appear. They have not mistaken their appearing object for their engaged object, 
sense consciousness, but they're mistaken in that they think that they exist in the way they appear, which is some an added sort of uh, criteria of the prasangika system. So when you say that sense consciousnesses are a basis for like understanding the nature of mind and reality or for um, experiencing certain states of meditation or whatever in the prasangika, prasangika tradition that's viewed skeptically because all sense cognitions are inherently incorrect cognitions because as long as there's the underlying belief in the in the true reality of phenomena then all cognitions are incorrect cognitions but for now we stick with the sautrantika system that there's mistaken and unmistaken based on the way that the appearing and the engaged object are related to in a very simple manner we don't add that other uh gloss onto the situation and that's our ground, the Sautrantika classification and way of understanding these experiences and reality is our ground. And then upon that, we debate, and the Chittamantras have one point of view, and the Prasangas have another, and so on and so forth. But it's very important that we understand the Sautrantika version as the, the basis that we can then debate those other points of view on. So now we shift to part... Uh, two of the book, which are mental factors. And we have a little introductory essay by John Dunn. Categories of mind on page 85 is discussed in part one. The Indian Buddhist account of mind argues for a causal continuum of minds, plural minds, such that each unique mind or mind event in the continuum arises from the previous moment and also acts as a cause for the arisal of the next unique mind event. In this way, a mind or moment of consciousness is causal in nature, but this causal process is not simply a matter of one mind moment producing the next. Instead, at least some other fundamental elements known as dharmas must be involved. More specifically, a core set of dharmas categorized under the general rubric of mental factors must be in place for a mind moment to occur. And often, many other mental factors are also active in any moment of mind. So you never have a moment of mind that's a pure mind without mental factors. And the mental factors are known as dharmas, as are the primary minds, the consciousnesses. In this account, consciousness thus involves a complex interactive, a multiple interaction of multiple cognitive and affective elements. The term affective uh, means sort of um, um, emotionally effective or functionally effective. From the earliest days of Buddhism until roughly the end of the first millennium, Indian Buddhist theorists articulated multiply, multiple finely grained accounts of these mental factors and their varied, various functions. So there are various versions of the list of mental factors in different traditions and different authors to introduce. This part of our volume on mind, I will begin by examining some of the basic motivations that inform the analysis of mental factors, key features of the most prominent account it will then draw our attention. And I will conclude with some reflections on some revealing aspects of this model, including the absence of any category for emotions. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you, but there are, there are no emotions. And you've all heard this famous story that 
in the Mind Life Institute, uh, which was uh, first started when a bunch of scientists, Western scientists interested in Buddhism met with the Dalai Lama. He wanted to learn about different types of Western science. And <clears throat> I spent days together, mostly each scientist presenting their sort of system, psychologies, uh, philosophies, uh, f uh, physics, neurobiology, and so forth. And they stumbled upon the fact that in uh, uh, Buddhism, there's no, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, the Abhidharma system, there's no word for emotions. There's no comparable term for emotions. So Buddhists are without emotions, basically. And if you have emotions, you're not a real Buddhist. Just kidding. While other topics treated in this volume draw on the wide range of sources introduced in part one, the topic of mind and mental facts is based almost entirely on the Abhidharma literature, and the general motivations of Abhidharma now analysis are clearly reflected in the material. In particular, two overall motivations underlie the detailed analysis of the mental factors that contribute to a moment of consciousness. First, the dominant, if implicit, role is again played by the critique of an enduring autonomous self. Everything is focused on this common enemy that seems to attack, act rather, as an agent of cognition an experiencer of affective states, a controller of the mind-body system, and so on. In other words, there's all these different ways of uh, sort of undermining the sense of there being an autonomous self. And the mental mind and mental factors description is a, a, another way of undermining them. In ways that were already evident in part one, the history of Abhidharma accounts of mind can be read in part as an attempt to construct models that explain how mental processes can work in the absence of any such essentialized self. The taxonomic analysis of mental factors, however, play another important role. They provide a mapping of the mind-body system that serves to direct contemplative practices, whose goal is quite literally to search for the precise, for precisely the kind of autonomous controlling self whose existence is so strongly suggested by our ordinary intuitions, though from the Buddhist perspective these intuitions are both false and the ultimate cause of suffering. That was a long sentence. And maybe sort of got lost in there is that uh, the goal of contemplative practices is to search for the self. It's a sort of interesting comment. And uh, that the mapping of the mind-body system in the, the way that we're doing it in the Abhidharma and the Pramana systems is meant to be a support for the meditative practices that search for the self case that wasn't clear. By carefully parsing the constituents of consciousness into discrete elements, the Abhidharma taxonomy of mental factors enables practitioners to search for this alleged self in a systematic way. Of course, from the Abhidharma standpoint, the conclusion of that search is that no such self can be found, but without a thorough taxonomy of the elements of experience, one might suspect that some key candidate for such a self has somehow been overlooked. By providing what purports to be an exhaustive map of all the poss possible candidates, the Abhidharma analysis enables one enables one to make one's search conclusive. Another motivation for these detailed taxonomies 
emerges from concerns with transforming inner lives and behavior. Buddhist practices aim to radically transform individuals by uprooting ignorance, the mental distortion that creates the illusion of autonomous self. Yet this final goal is un understood to be preceded by and prepared for by a long period of, oh sorry, preceded by a long period of preparation that involves intermediate goals, especially the attainment of mental capacities, behaviors conducive to contemplative practice. A widespread model maintains that the wisdom or insight required to uproot ignorance can only emerge with a suitable level of med meditative concentration. And since the requisite concentration cannot be developed in a chaotic mind, practitioners must first cultivate a lifestyle that embodies ethics. The claim here is that a mind filled with disturbing non-virtuous mental states such as hatred will necessarily be unstable and the Abhidharma analysis of mental factors is thus also concerned with a detailed account that distinguishes non-virtuous mental states from virtuous ones. Through that analysis, practitioners learn to identify these states and can apply various techniques for reducing the non-virtuous and enhancing the virtuous. And it does this, I believe, in two ways. One is by describing what are the mental factors that arise in concomitance with virtuous and non-virtuous mental states? And what are the uh, mental factors and states of mind that occur as uh, springboards or foundations for subsequent positive or negative mental states? Along these same lines, the, so something like loving kindness is considered as the foundation for concentration, as the preparation for concentration. Along these same lines, the account of mind and mental factors also provides a model for understanding how specific practices affect cognitive and affective processes in beneficial ways. A straightforward example is the role that the mental factor called aspiration plays in attentional processes such that in the absence of aspiration, which involves which involves an intense interest directed toward an object, sustained attention can easily degrade. I think is something that we all find in our meditation practice if we don't cultivate and maintain a strong uh, aspiration to be present then our ability to be present in meditation tends to wane and that's not a comment about wane another example is mindfulness a key mental factor in practices that seek to enhance attention the detailed analysis of the capacity of this mental factor to, for example, inhibit attention, capture or uh, inhibit attention, capture or distraction, inhibit attention, capture or distraction, clearly connects to some of the contemplative techniques discussed later in, in section six, which is shamatha and vipassana and loving kindness and so forth. In this way, the account of mental factors is best read with an eye to the way that these analyses enhance the psychological and behavioral changes that are the actual targets of Buddhist practice. Srila Samadhi Prajna. Was that a, a hand raised? MB? No. A Sangha's model of uh, omnipresent and determinant factors. Indian Buddhist theorists developed various somewhat divergent accounts of mental factors and given the usual importance according to Vasubandhu's treasure of knowledge, Abhidharma Kosha, 
One might expect that text to play a central role here as well. Nevertheless, for this particular topic, the Tibetans have instead focused on the model presented by Asanga of the 4th century, the common era in his text, Compendium of Knowledge, Abhidharma Samachaya. And this text is often referred to as higher Abhidharma, whereas Vasubandhu's is lower Abhidharma. And it's said to be inspired by a higher level of philosophical analysis in contrast to Vasubandhu's. Um, our authors do discuss Vasubandhu's approach along with several other models, but the focus is the Sangha's. Here they follow the mind and mental factors literature, a genre in Tibet that involves extracting from Abhidharma texts, especially Asanga's the material specifically relevant to this topic. Asanga's list of mental factors is extensive, but he identifies a set of particularly important omnipresent factors that must occur with any moment of consciousness. And he also introduces a crucial category of mental factors with a determinant object. So let's examine omnipresent factors. Centuries before Sangha Buddhist theorists were already identifying the mental factors that they deemed common to all moments of consciousness, all mind events. All of these accounts assume a distinction between what Tibetan scholarship calls the main mind and the mental factors that occur with it. In brief, the main mind simply the fact of awareness of some object within any moment of consciousness. Um, and that's a description of one of each of the six consciousnesses are a main mind and they simply experience the fact um, or they are awareness of some object. The omnipresent mental factors are the features of that moment of consciousness that might must be present for that consciousness to occur. And this list reveals important insights about what is minimally required for an object to be presented in awareness. Based on the paradigmatic case of sense perception, traditional lists often begin with contact, which concerns the relationship between a physical sense organ and the mind. Three factors. Um, so contact here is uh, the contact between the mind and a physical sense organ. So it's the internal contact because the replication of the outer object occurs in the physical sense organ. Three factors, intention, attention, and discernment have to do with the minimal attentional features required for a moment of awareness. Attention orients the mind toward the object Sorry, and discernment is what functions to grasp the mark, in effect, selecting the object in distinction from other objects. And finally, the mental factor of feeling accounts for the hedonic tone of the awareness of the object as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The inclusion of feeling as necessary for any awareness points to the causal role that hedonic tone plays in Buddhist accounts of behavior inasmuch as a positive or negative tone plays a significant downstream causal role in one's continued engagement with the object through behaviors focused on obtaining what is pleasant and avoiding what is pleasant, unpleasant. Hedonic, hedonism, pleasure for the sake of pleasure. 
Our authors present a succinct and clear account of these omnipresent mental factors, and there is no need to repeat their efforts here. Instead, we might consider some intriguing implications of the model. In particular, it's noteworthy that one of a song's contributions is to narrow the list of omnipresent factors to just five, whereas uh, Vasubandhu, considered to be his half-brother, bundles many more into the omnipresent category, taking the aforementioned aspiration and other factors such as concentration to be omnipresent. Uh, by removing these and other factors from the omnipresent category, Asanga seems to be pointing to a quite minimal moment of consciousness to understand Asanga's possible motivations. We might consider the notions of phenomenal and access concentrations which is sort of an oblique and obscure reference to the different levels of consciousness that occur in normal everyday life versus absorption, meditation, access, concentration. Developed by the, let's see, I'm gonna skip uh, Ned's whole scheme here. I hope that's okay. And skip to the next section on page 90 called mental factors with a determinate object when the song shortens the list of omnipresent factors he does so by creating a new separate category mental factors with a determinate object and it's important to realize that uh, in this system these are considered dharmas objects of observation they can be known in the sense of observed by con consciousness or cognition but um they're not like they're not like separate phenomena that are like floating around and like that are like summoned certain sense cognitive uh, sense base when visual consciousness happens and then they run to the other next consciousness. They're really just like aspects of consciousness, and there's a there's a huge tendency to sort of over um, reify them, which would be helpful not to do even though you know they're listed as dharmas but mental dharmas are not like physical dharmas they're not like separate little entities they're different animals um let's see here blocks distinction between phenomenal access seems relevant and that the cognitive states that involve these mental factors appear to be those required for access. So I made a mistake. I thought he was talking about access and concentration in terms of absorption, but instead he's, he's talking about it in the way this gentleman Block uses it. We're going back to that paragraph. It says, Block, as Block put it, phenomenal consciousness is experience, the phenomenally conscious aspect of a state of what it is like to be in that state. Access consciousness, by contrast, is characterized by its availability for use in reasoning and rationally guiding speech and action. Two different types of consciousness. Hopefully that's clear. Coming back to where we were, um, Asanga's account is vague at points. It seems that the presence of at least some of the factors in this category accounts for the kinds of determinate cognitions that may follow upon an initial indeterminate moment of awareness, such as the first moment of a sense consciousness. Certainly the term determinate object itself indicates that the presence of these mental factors is what enables conceptual engagement with the object presented in cognition. 
although not explicitly thematized in this way by traditional sources, all of the mental factors with a determinate object relate to holding an object in attention, perhaps in ways similar to contemporary scientific notions of working memory. A song as model does not specify how many factors must be present simultaneously in order for an object to be held in attention. But one insight in the formulation of this category is that the list begins with aspiration and resolution. And uh, he says, Songas does not specify how many factors must be present. And he says that because in the Abhidharma world, like Vas uh, Vasubandhu's world, they specify the, the numbers of uh, mental factors that must be present. Both of these factors, aspiration and resolution, mark a kind of goal-oriented interest in the object. If we assume that one or both of these must be present for an object to be held in attention, then this model intriguingly suggests that goal-oriented interest is a key ingredient in this form of attention. Which is sort of an odd thing to say because the whole category is called, basically called goal-object-oriented uh, or, or goal-oriented cognition, cognitive factors, determinate object factors. Beyond the goal-oriented dimension of attention provided by aspiration and risk resolution, the mental factor of mindfulness is even more clearly attentional in nature. And he's going through these mental factors. And uh, if you're confused by the presence of uh, mindfulness and uh, uh, you'll see a couple of other familiar terms coming up, um, those are actually mental factors of the object determining type, determinate object mental factors, as well as being faculties that we cultivate in meditation, but they're, they're naturally occurring in the mental continuum in every moment of object determining consciousness. There's a, a little, uh, very fast moment of mindfulness and so on. Uh, in part six, we'll see that the term mindfulness plays a broad role in Buddhist contemplative practice, but in the specific technical context of mental factors, this term points especially to the capacity to block distraction. In other words, the mental factor called mindfulness does not account for one's orienting toward selecting or focusing on an object instead when an object is being held in attention. Mindfulness is what prevents attention from being captured by competing stimulus in the same way the original Sanskrit term smriti, which really means remembering or recollecting, might best be understood as a metaphor. Just as remembering something means that we're not forgetting it, so too when the mental factor smriti is in place, we're not forgetting or losing track of the object due to our attention being captured by some other object. I will have more to say about this and other aspects of mindfulness later on the last two mental factors in this category. So there's five in this category as well as in, uh, there were also five in the omnipresent category. The last two are concentration, which is different than mindfulness, and wisdom. At first glance, they may seem to apply uniquely to the realm of meditative practices designed to cultivate those factors, and our authors do indeed acknowledge the importance of these factors in the contemplative context, not least because the term for the factor wisdom is identical to the term for the insight that uproots fundamental ignorance. Nevertheless, these factors do not just concern contemplation elsewhere in the context of a lack of meta-awareness, asam prajanya, which is how John Donne 
John Donne, if you remember, translates Samprajanya as meta-awareness, and Samprajanya is Shesen in Tibetan, or the sometimes translated by Chung Brimshe as awareness, by other people as investigation, or uh, alertness is a common translation. Sangha, again, uses the term for wisdom, prajna, but notes that in that context, it occurs with afflictive mental states that produce suffering, thus that it is thus involved in non-virtuous behavior. So he's saying that um, you can have wisdom without meta-awareness, in which case wisdom is merely the, uh, and he's saying that in order to point out that in the case of the mental factors, wisdom is just the quality of understanding the nature of the object. And that can be done for nefarious purposes or for positive purposes. Even the high level of one-pointed attention involved in the mental factor of concentration need not be necessarily virtuous. As it turns out for a song and many other, but not all Abhidharma theories, even the mental factor of mindfulness can occur in an afflicted or non-virtuous mental states which is a sort of controversial thing because many people say that mindfulness is inherently positive in nature. The upshot is that while this category mental factor is clearly associated with cultivation of highly focused states of extraordinary attention, the cultivation of refined attention in itself does not guarantee that the mind will be in a wholesome state. And this is undoubtedly one reason that Abhidharma theorists are so concerned with properly distinguishing virtuous mental factors from those that they refer to as afflictions. And it's 9.15 and we didn't get very far. Maybe we can do uh, two more pages, this one last section quickly, virtuous factors, afflictions. As we've seen, the song is model, the most dominant one for Tibetan, lays out the minimal set of omnipresent mental factors that must be present at any moment of consciousness and articulates a set of factors that must be present at least in part for more stable attentional states to occur, i.e. object determining factors. At the same time, however, a moment of consciousness can and usually does include many other mental factors and these are parsed or divided into three categories, virtuous, non-virtuous factors that are called afflictions or clashes and variable that can be either virtuous or non-virtuous. Let's examine some. Overall, the distinction between virtuous and non-virtuous factors is based largely on the functions and effects of these processes and states. In the long term, virtuous factors produce sukha, well-being, which can be translated as happiness, pleasure, well-being, because they establish karma or mental conditioning that creates such results. In contrast, non-virtuous states have the long-term effect of dukkha, the opposite, suffering, pain, or dissatisfaction because they establish the conditioning that leads to dukkha. In nearer terms, these virtuous and non-virtuous factors also support more immediate downstream effects. For example, Asanga notes that the virtuous factor non-hatred, which inhibits the arisal of hatred, functions in a way that prevents negative or destructive behavior. The non-virtuous state of anger, in contrast, functions to induce unpleasant mental states and to induce negative destructive behavior. While mental factors are often described in terms of their function, phenomenological features also apply in their descriptions, in particular mental afflictions. The general rubric for non-virtuous states are said to arise in such a way that the mind is disturbed or unsettled in various ways, including by distraction and agitation.
Here again, we see the influence of concerns about contemplative practice in these accounts of mental factors. As noted above, Buddhist theories of spiritual transformation maintain that while only wisdom can uproot the deepest causes of suffering and dissatisfaction, one must also train in meditative concentration, since the cultivation of wisdom requires that. And likewise, the contemplative training concentration will not succeed with a chaotic mind. One must also train in ethics. And so this is the traditional view of the, the Shila Samadhi Prajna, the three wheels of Dharma, is that absence of ethical be, uh, behavior and concern results in a chaotic mind or like a, a, a mental state that is inflexible to concentrative development. Um, that is one must cultivate virtue and reduce non-virtue precisely because mental afflictions or non-virtues cause the mind to be unsettled in a way that inhibits the cultivation of attention. Along similar lines, our authors, our authors also examine civil virtues central to Tibetan Buddhist contemplative practice, love, forbearance, and compassion, even though these do not figure in a Sangha's list of virtues for some strange reason. Here, authors cite a beloved verse from the work of Shantideva, all who were happy in the world are so are happy because of wanting others to be happy. All those who suffer are so from wanting themselves to be happy. So the source of happiness is actually striving for the happiness of others and vice versa. As suggested by this verse, love, forbearance, and compassion are crucial because they enable practitioners to radically reorient to self-focus, self-cherishing attitudes and motivations in such a way that their mental life and manifest behavior become focused on the welfare of others impartially. And through that shift in perspective, practitioners achieve their own highest spiritual goals, including authentic happiness. This reorientation toward concern for others, however, can be affected by beginning with the kind of innate, spontaneous, loving kindness and compassion we feel in an unbiased way toward our loved ones and others whom we experience, in some sense, as extensions of ourselves. And uh, this is often the way that loving kindness practice is recommended to be done and start with those who it's easy to have loving kindness for, that you spontaneously have loving kindness for. In this section, our authors thus explore some of the contemplative techniques that use our own innate capacity for loving kindness and compassion as a springboard toward the development of unbiased universal forms of these capacities. And we're actually almost done with this. If you can hold on a few minutes, I'm not going to do the whole of this remaining, but just skip quickly through it. As we've seen, loving kindness and compassion are key virtues targeted by Buddhist contemplative practice, but they don't figure in his list. The absent points to some important issues around the categorization of these factors and our authors. And this part with an inventory of lists found in Buddhist sources other than Sanghas includes Abhidharma sources, blah, 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 blah. Um, the presence of so many alternative accounts without coming to any final record reconciliation of all the different accounts points, first of all, to the instrumental nature of this list. They're motivated by the transformational goals of Buddhist practice. And they also make sense as responses to the variety of goals and historical contexts that categorize the Buddhist tradition. In other words, like what were considered to be important virtues at the time. Um, this does not make these accounts somehow unscientific. All numerous historians and philosophers of science have articulated the way that concerns and cultural context of modern science also shape its models, theories, and outcomes. 
Uh, let's see, skipping to the end of that paragraph and skipping the next paragraph. Uh, as we've seen a crucial distinction from Buddhist theorists between virtuous and non-virtuous, the, the question of whether a mental factor might be called an emotion is simply not relevant. We've seen that a non-virtuous mental state is that on the one hand is disturbed or unsettled and on the other produces suffering and dissatisfaction, at least in the long term. Additionally, mental afflictions such as anger are also root in fundamental confusion about the nature of personal identity or even about reality itself that's even purely cognitive factors such as inquiry, which could scarcely be categorized as an emotion, manifest as non-virtuous when they perpetuate that fundamental confusion. So there's a way of pairing up the omnipresent and the object determining mental factors with the virtuous and non-virtuous ones, and thereby the object determining and omnipresent mental factors become either unvirtuous or virtuous depending on what they're paired with. Um, talks about the work of Paul Ekman who identifies lists, uh, a list of six emotions that transcend cultural cultures, all different cultures that are common to all cultures. Anger, disgust, fear, happiness, sadness, and surprise. And uh, only one of them actually factors in the, these lists, it's interestingly enough. So there's something else afoot. And that brings us to the end of the introduction. And so we're a little bit behind, but not terribly so. And we'll begin with the distinguishing of mind and mental factors in chapter five next week on Tuesday evening, same time and place. Comments, questions, so suggestions? Yes. In this, could we say that emotions color mental factors, but it's not a mental factor? Is that kind of what he's saying? Well, I guess so, you know, it's like we're mincing a little bit words here, you know, the anger is in the list, right, of mental factors, and we consider anger to be an emotion. Uh, but they, they can, uh, but when we say something's an emotion, we, we consider it to be like independent of uh, the other factors of mind that arise in that moment, we sort of, think that anger comes with its own, uh, comes independent of the rest of the uh, factors that exist in that moment. Whereas right. their view is that anger arises along with a whole bunch of other different factors. And, and therefore, the factor emo uh, anger um, can't be really singled out. It's like the whole package is maybe what you would call an emotion, but to call uh, object an interest in an object and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom emotions is not, doesn't make sense. So that's why they keep saying that they don't really have emotions, even though the, the six unvirtuous mental factors are, are, five of them are clearly emotions. One of them is doubt, which is we would not really consider an emotion. Another one is wrong view, which we would not consider to be an emotion. And those are in the same category as anger, uh, lust, and um, pride and envy.
right? So, so you know, it's a little bit like making this big point that Buddhism doesn't have emotions. It's a little bit of a non sequitur, you know, and maybe it's like trying to raise, uh, get some, some uh, publicity that's not really warranted. I don't know. <laughs> Any other comments? Mary Beth. I'm trying to understand, like, was there a point where the Buddha had mental factors and then didn't have mental factors? Or is that like, is there a point along? <laughs> yeah, he, he had mental factors up until the last night of his existence as a sentient being. And then when he became a Buddha, he no longer has a mind or mental factors. Okay. Because he's not a sentient being, bizarrely enough. Uh, but these lists of mental factors are based on sutras where the Buddha talks about um, one can cultivate this and one should um, avoid that. And he lists these mental factors. And so these lists are called from the sutras where the Buddha himself has stated these mental factors, not in the sense that he is possessive of them himself, but the uh, he's either talking specifically about other individuals, such as like uh, somebody who comes to him with extreme anger, and he says, uh, he gives us an example of what, what if somebody gave you a present you didn't want, then it would it would not you would not accept it and the person who gave you the gift would still be in ownership of that and that's how i feel about your anger i don't accept your anger you know so he's talking about that person's anger and then he's talking generally about if one is cultivating meditation you give up this and that and so forth but he doesn't talk about it in in terms of him's first person except maybe when he does the Jataka, the story, you know, talks about his, uh, his experience before enlightenment. Is there an, a notion that he sort of worked through the mental factors somehow? And like just one by one, just kind of like, oh, no, 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 that's not helpful. That's, that's wrong. I mean. No, uh, not, not like a one by one situation it's more like he um he understood that there was no self yeah and there's no and this or that there's no owner of the experience there's no builder of the house there's no creator of uh, the experience there's no experiencer there's no enjoyer and uh, he did that by virtue of uh, going into meditative absorption to the fourth jhana and then analyzing his experience. So bringing together shamatha and vipassana. And in that deep state of, of uh, absorption, he saw, oh, there's still this sense of self that is what's tying me to this situation and causing suffering. And that sense of self is erroneous. And if I let go of that sense of self, everything falls apart. And I'm free. I become free. All my shackles fall apart. So um, there's no uh, presentation of him like going methodically through the mental factors, nor is there a 
presentation of him methodically going through the stages of the path. He's said to have gone from a normal human being on the path of accumulation to uh, a Buddha in that one session. So he traverses all five paths in the course of a, a few hours, which is highly unusual. And it's not what the Mahayana tradition considers. The Mahayana tradition considers that uh, something very different. So. So let us conclude by this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the regions wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you, and see you next week. Thank we'll you. go through all the Thanks. mental factors. Good night. Good night. Take care. Bye.